Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. We are into the final week before the big dance. We are inching ever so close to the magical tournament in March, and BetOnline has you covered with all the latest odds, totals, and props for basketball season. Head over to the website or use your mobile devices to sign up today and get your 50% welcome bonus using our promo code BLEAV, B-L-E-A-V, BetOnline, where the game starts. All right, everybody, however and whenever it is you may be listening, thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of Wired Up. This is Wired Up episode 110 here on the Take It Easy podcast. Thank you for stopping in, everybody. I hope you all are having a fantabulous weekend. Maybe you're enjoying some college basketball. Maybe you're enjoying life outside of sports. I hope you all are doing wonderful and enjoying any and every way that you pass your time. So to send us here today into Wired Up, I have a new podcast. I have a new podcast with Believe called Believe in Houston Texans. I am, to a certain extent, covering the Houston Texans now as an addition, additional podcast that is helping to fuel our dreams here on Take It Easy and with all of the work that we're doing, whether it be Red Rain or the Slump Buster Pod or all of our social media handles and all of the work that we're doing is just a step in the direction of helping to fund these dreams. And Believe has let me take over a team-centric podcast. Now, you have heard me talk about the Houston Texans before. I think that the Houston Texans are the worst-run franchise in all of North American professional sports. And I also find the Houston Texans incredibly fascinating, as I will explain off the top of the first episode of the Believe in Houston Texans podcast, which I want to copy and paste here because this conversation is similar to the types that we have on the podcast where it's a long-form storytelling narrative situation. I found the first episode incredibly enjoyable to make. And then on Friday, we got the news that Deshaun Watson was not going to have charges filed against him in Harris, uh, sorry, not have criminal charges filed against him in Harris County, which is speeding up the process for Deshaun Watson's trade. By the time you're listening to this, Deshaun Watson might be traded. I'm recording at 8.41 West Coast time on a Saturday, March 12th. There's currently a Big West championship game going on to punch a ticket to March Madness. Uh, also, just uh, I believe just concluding was the SWAC championship game. So that gives you a, a little bit of a leeway into what time it is here. Yes, as we're talking right now, Cal State Fullerton and Long Beach State have just tipped off in the Big West championship game. So one of those teams will punch a ticket to March Madness. And we'll find out who it is together at some point as we move into championship week. So just for that context, I don't know what's happened with the Deshaun Watson situation. Um, So 
we talk about that as well as a story that I would have done on Wired Up today, but we did as an emergency pod for Believe in Texans. Many of you have probably watched it on our YouTube already, so thank you to everyone who stopped into our YouTube or already subscribed to the Believe in Texans podcast feed. Um, with that, I want to do the first episode that we recorded, which is talking about how I feel about the Houston Texans and the idea of the number three pick, which was a similar conversation that we had last year when it related to the Miami Dolphins, who had the number three pick in the draft, and there was a debate about whether or not to draft another quarterback instead of Tua in an incredibly quarterback-heavy draft class, and Tua didn't necessarily show the same promise, and they weren't showing the same love for Tua when they got the Houston Texans pick, and for the second year in a row, the Texans have the three pick, and now they're starting a rebuild. I'll explain all of that in that part, and we'll also talk about Deshaun Watson here on a Houston Texans-centric wired up episode but fortunately the Houston Texans are at the center of everything that's happening in the NFL right now along with the Dallas Cowboys dumping Amari Cooper onto the Cleveland Browns but we'll talk about that on memes of the weekend on Monday we'll also talk about the MLB lockout being lifted because instead of the battle that we were talking about and looked like we were inevitably headed towards they came to a compromise they came to a compromise that we didn't think would happen but lo and behold they came to a compromise to benefit all parties by doing some weird concession stuff we'll talk about that on memes of the weekend on Monday for now let us talk about Deshaun Watson. Let us talk about the number three pick in the draft and get you and make sure to subscribe also to the Believe in Texans feed. Download a bunch of episodes. It's super helpful to me. It's not like downloading 600 here. There's like 20 episodes on the feed. The first three are mine. So if you want to just download those three, much appreciated. Any and all support, huge for this podcast. And with that being said, let's talk about the Deshaun Watson situation and the state of the Houston Texans. Enjoy episodes one and one and a half of the Believe in Houston Texans podcast with your host, me. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night. However and whenever it is, you may be listening. Thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the Believe in Houston Texans podcast. This is technically the first episode, so thank you for stopping into another episode uh, this is Kyle Ledbetter coming at you. I am the host of this fine podcast. Our first episode of the new rebooted Believe in Houston Texans podcast coming at you here on a wonderful Tuesday. May not be a Tuesday when you're listening to this. It could be a Wednesday, a Thursday, a Friday, and that's what it could be morning, evening, afternoon, or night, as we mentioned a little bit earlier. So however and whenever you may be listening, we appreciate you stopping in here today. So we've got a fun show planned for you today. Coming up, I'm going to talk about the number three pick in the NFL draft. It belongs to the Houston Texans. Will it continue to belong to the Houston Texans? Should it continue to belong to the Houston Texans? We will talk about that and more. But first, let's 
just kick it off with our first ever episode of the Believe in Houston Texans podcast by just talking about my vision for the podcast, my relationship to the Houston Texans, all of this stuff. First and foremost, I do not get paid to cover the Houston Texans. In fact, I don't really get paid at all, but I do have an encyclopedic knowledge of NFL football. It's a really weird thing to choose to be encyclopedic about, but I have an encyclopedic knowledge of NFL football. I am not a Houston Texans fan, as you may have heard me mention in the intro, trailer, whatever podcast. I have not rooted for the Houston Texans one day of my life. And I actually have said many occasions on our podcast, Take It Easy, which is also available on the Believe Podcast Network, that I think the Houston Texans currently are the worst-run organization in all of American professional sports. The Houston Texans are currently run by a team pastor. A team pastor who looks like a youth pastor, but is a team pastor. And the owner of the team is the son of the owner who talked about inmates running the asylum and also are good friends with Mitch McConnell. Those are the few things I know about the Houston Texans and the fact that people really, really want them to sell the team down in Houston. I also know that the Houston Texans had abysmal attendance numbers over the last two seasons, specifically last year, and for good reason the Houston Texans should have had abysmal numbers because the Houston Texans have been a tire fire of a franchise over the past two seasons. Every year on Take It Easy, on January 12th, we celebrate the fact that on January 12th, the Houston Texans were up 24 points against the Kansas City Chiefs. And they were going to play a home game against the Titans of Ryan Tannehill and Derrick Henry for the right to go to Super Bowl 54. And they probably would have won Super Bowl 54 against the San Francisco 49ers that year. Maybe they don't, but the point still stands. They had a team good enough to make the Super Bowl. And within six months, all gone. All of it gone. And not only is it all gone, in the last two years since, they have gone 8 and 25. All they have to show for it is Davis Mills and Rex Burkhead. That is all they have to show for it. They've gone through four different coaches in the time period since they were up 24-0 on the Kansas City Chiefs. They have gone through multiple general managers and multiple, multiple quarterbacks, one of which is currently embroiled in what I like to call this generation's most fascinating, intriguing sports story because it is a cross-section of a superstar face of the NFL faced with unparalleled accusations against him. It's incredibly fascinating. Someone should write a documentary about this story of the Houston Texans. And by the way, we intend to do that at some point here during the off-season period. This podcast will blossom into a six- or seven-part story of the Houston Texans at some point here. It's the way we're going to navigate through the off-season. It's going to have, hopefully, interviews, and it's going to be like a long-form documentary-style podcast. We'll get to that 
later on after the NFL draft stuff has passed and when I can actually focus and put in a bunch of work to this. Because, you know, for forewarning, I'm also a college student at the same time as this. I, I graduate pretty soon, but I'm still currently a college student and have a life outside of sports that I'm realizing now exists. Because as a, as a child, I was an incredibly, incredibly sheltered sports person. And that's what helped develop this big brain encyclopedic knowledge of football that I then used to talk about how football reflects society and social issues and things like that. So anyways, the Houston Texans, really poorly run franchise. I'm so mesmerized by this team. And by the way, I know they're the worst run organization in all of North American professional sports. But the Houston Texans are a team that I specifically asked to cover. I really find this team fascinating because you're not going to see a situation like this anywhere. You are stripping the team completely bare. No cap space. No star players. An incredible asset available in Deshaun Watson that is currently not an asset because he's in this purgatory of the the NFL space, the legal space, and just the moral and ethical conundrum that even NFL teams have to face around that Deshaun Watson situation. We know he's not going to play for the Houston Texans again, and the Houston Texans have incredible, incredible value in Deshaun Watson, hence why they've kept him on the bench and paid him for the last 12 months. They have paid him to go through the legal troubles of the last 12 months. All of it is so unique and so fascinating and talking about this stuff is way more important and way more interesting for me and hopefully for you than just talking about which players the Houston Texans will draft in the fourth round of a meaningless draft because the team is going to be terrible for the next two seasons. But we're going to do a little Venn diagram of this. If there's anything I've learned in 1,200 episodes or 12, yeah, 1,200 podcast episodes that I've done, I've recorded every day for three years over on Take It Easy. I do podcasts for SB Nation and podcasts for um, this this network and YouTube channels like the Slump Buster YouTube channel, which you can check out with the link in the description to this episode. Not to shamelessly plug myself or my friend's stuff, but just saying. In the 1,200 episodes of podcasts that I have done, one of the things that I've learned is it's a Venn diagram. It's what I want to talk about and what y'all want to hear. Give the people what they want and give them things that maybe they didn't know they wanted, like talking about the macro-level issues of the Houston Texans organization in relation to their ownership and who is running the team and white power and Deshaun Watson scandal. We're going to talk about all of that stuff because the Houston Texans find themselves at a cross-section of that right now. But we're also going to talk about draft picks, and we're going to talk about wins and losses and X's and O's and all kinds of stuff like that, because ultimately that is what football is about on its barest level. As sports reflect society, and I find all of this stuff fascinating, at its barest level, we are going to talk about the actual football of the Houston Texans. Depressing as it may be, The Houston Texans are at the center of every situation and circumstance it feels like in the NFL because they are bare-naked, poor leadership at the heart of NFL dysfunction. Like I said, the worst-run organization in American professional sports. You're going to hear me say it a lot. Sorry if you're a Texans fan. You root for a sad team. But the good thing about you Texans fans is that you know you root for a sad team. You guys aren't like the Chicago Bears who pretend like your team is relevant over the past 35 years. You guys aren't like the Denver Broncos who like to talk shit even though they've been terrible for six years. You guys aren't like New York Giants fans who actively crap or actively boo their team 
even though, and want them to be great, even though they are kind of the reason why the Giants are also terrible, because if they hadn't pressured Ben McAdoo to bench Eli Manning, they might have gotten Josh Allen in the 2018 draft. You guys aren't like those franchises. You are franchises that are piss-poor terrible, and you know that you are piss-poor terrible. The one thing that I find interesting about Houston, and this is just for uh, the Texans fans in the Houston metro area. This isn't necessarily people who are you know, coming to us from California or in, in Mexico or in Europe or anywhere that uh, you're covering Houston Texans. By the way, I'm in California, by the way, for anyone who's wondering. But specifically for people in the Houston area, Y'all will just stop watching. The Houston Astros, when they were going through their teardown, registered a 0.0 rating in the Houston area. The Houston Rockets currently register a 0.7 rating for their home games on local broadcasts in the Houston area. Y'all will just not give a shit. And the NFL is more of a national sport than those other sports, but the thing I respect about you, Houston, you know that life is pretty damn good in Houston. From what I can tell, I've never been to Houston, but life's pretty damn good to be caring this this meticulously about a Houston Texans franchise that not only ruined being up 24-0 on the Kansas City Chiefs in the divisional round about to go to the Super Bowl just two years ago, but also helped fund three different NFL franchises' most successful runs of the last 20 years. The Miami Dolphins, thanks to the five first-round picks they got for Laramie Tunsil, have had their most successful run of football in the last 20 years. It's not saying very much, but they have had their most successful run of the last 20 years over these past three seasons. And the Arizona Cardinals are having one of their most successful runs by taking their two-star players, DeAndre Hopkins and J.J. Watt. And whoever gets Deshaun Watson is going to have a franchise star quarterback for the next 10 to 15 years. And boy, oh boy, have the Houston Texans bungled this because they had all of that. They had the draft picks. They had the star players. They had the franchise quarterback. They had a coach that went to four playoff appearances in six years. And they bungled all of it. And now it's a sad, depressing franchise that is at the crossroads of everything happening on the periphery in the NFL. This is not necessarily to make you feel bad about yourselves. Like, it's just a team. It's not you guys. Houston is wonderful city. All of you listening to this are wonderful people. You just happen to, in most cases, maybe you're listening to this and you don't root for the Texans, but in many cases, those who root for the Houston Texans look at this and say, our team is terrible. And the only thing I have to say is yes, and they are going to continue to be terrible because they were starting in a worse place than any franchise in the NFL. Not only have they gone two seasons while just absolutely punting on everything, they haven't even had the draft picks to show for it until this year. They finally get the draft pick available for them to be able to use in the first and second rounds because last year they didn't have a first or a second round pick. They went to the Miami Dolphins. So, and ultimately it went to the San Francisco 49ers so they could get Trey Lance. The Texans are just now getting back to zero. Like, it went from dysfunctional NFL franchise, then the Texans. It's like the the scene in Moneyball with Brad Pitt where he's like, there are good teams, there are mediocre teams, there are piss-poor franchises, there are dysfunctional franchises, then there's 50 feet of crap, 
Then there's the Houston Texans. The Houston Texans spent two years being absolutely dog shit terrible. And by the way, in 2020, they were just incredibly unlucky in one possession games. Like, both those losses to the Titans in 2020, just brutal upsets. Like, they should have won both of those games. So the Houston Texans, in fairness, should have won seven games in 2020. But still, piss poor terrible in 2020 piss poor terrible in 2021 and now they're just as bad as the Jacksonville Jaguars they are now at the same level as the Jacksonville Jaguars because not only are they piss poor terrible dysfunctional now they actually get draft picks to start building this whole thing back up it's been an apocalyptic two years for the Houston Texans and you're still three years away from building the ship back up Like, it is a long, long road for the Houston Texans to turn this around. This is how franchises remain in purgatory for 20 years. Poorly run organizations refusing to admit their mistakes and then ultimately bearing the consequences of such mistakes and then repeating the mistakes once they have available cap space and available draft picks again. The Houston Texans might be terrible for a decade. Like, just forewarning, the Houston Texans might be a terrible, terrible franchise for a decade straight. We have never seen, like as bad as the Cleveland Browns were the year that they tore everything to the ground, Cleveland at least had the draft pick receipts to show for it. The Texans have been terrible for two seasons and have nothing to show for it right now. The rebuild is just starting for the Houston Texans. This was fumigating the organization. They fired three coaches in less than two years. They fired a general manager and then fired the guy who replaced the general manager. They promoted a team pastor to team president who had a big role in trading DeAndre Hopkins for literally nothing. The Houston Texans are a terrible, terrible, terrible franchise. And we are going to cover this team to the holy hell for the next months, six, eight months. This franchise is going to be so fascinating to cover. Maybe we'll bring in a co-host sometime soon. We'll have a history of the Texans at some point here. We're going to talk about draft picks. We're going to talk about players. We're going to talk about free agency. We're going to talk about all of this stuff on this podcast. But it's also not going to be Texans propaganda. Definitely not going to be, here is the glimmering hope in the future for the Houston Texans fans. It's going to suck for a while. If I'm still doing this podcast two or three years from now, then maybe we'll still be talking about the Houston Texans in an actual NFL way. Like, we can actually cover the team the way I cover the Cardinals over on SB Nation. Like, maybe then we can talk about this team, but this team is just now starting the rebuild. This It took two years to fumigate the entire organization because the reason Bill O'Brien can't get a job in the NFL again is because Bill O'Brien, despite having four division titles in six years, oversaw, along with Jack Easterby, one of the greatest collapses of an NFL franchise that we have ever seen. And I think a lot of this has to do with Cal McNair taking over the team and ha- and putting his faith in bad people. Because ultimately it begins with leadership at the top and trickles on down. But Bill O'Brien is definitely responsible in that situation. This is, uh, I mean, Nick Casario gets to reap the benefits of it. But ultimately Nick Casario probably won't get the protection unless he can build a team over the next three years. Jack Easterby is to blame, but he somehow still has a powerful role with the Houston Texans. This team has been an apocalyptic franchise across the last two seasons, hence the fact that they've now hired three different coaches who are African-American in a sport that doesn't hire black coaches under any circumstances to try and clean up the mess that they have. They wanted to hire 
Josh McCown. They were thinking of hiring Brian Flores to essentially do what Lovey Smith was doing this year. The Houston Texans fumigated the organization, just fumigated the organization. And it took three different coaches to go through it. And by the way, they're still fumigating the organization because they still have nothing to show for it other than Davis Mills, who we'll talk about him a lot, I assume, over this offseason. To me, looks like a a low-end starter to high-end backup. Maybe they give him more opportunities to succeed, but, you know, nothing special about Davis Mills. And Rex Burkhead, who got a one-year contract extension from having an incredible season last year. And they got a fifth-round pick for Mark Ingram. They used cap space to get a draft pick. It's a good move by the Houston Texans. I will give them that, as much as we've just destroyed that franchise for the last 15 minutes. So the Houston Texans find themselves an incredibly interesting crossroad right now. Um, and these are all things that we're going to talk about there is like how they rebuild a franchise essentially from scratch now, the same way that the Bengals spent the last two years rebuilding from scratch, the way the Cardinals rebuilt from scratch, although they happen to get franchise quarterbacks to make the process easier, the way the Jets have been trying to rebuild for 10 years, the way the Lions have been trying to rebuild with Man Campbell, the way the Giants have been trying to rebuild for the last 10 years, the Texans are now mediocre. So congratulations, they've now gotten out of, to a certain extent, the 50 feet of crap that they were in because they traded DeAndre Hopkins for nothing, cut J.J. Watt. We're going to have to trade Deshaun Watson before Deshaun Watson had his legal scandal that is now putting him in the purgatory of moral, ethical, legal, and NFL, well, purgatory. And you're going to see that situation now over the last two years weave itself out and the Texans move on from this era. Now it took three years to reset to get all your draft picks back to have some measure of available cap space and ultimately to set yourself up to where now you actually are starting from zero. It took two years to climb out of everything, but now you're starting from zero and the Houston Texans are going to spend the next three years going through the rebuilding process with probably multiple coaching hires, because we'll talk about Lovey Smith later on, but Lovey Smith is a shadow coach, the same way that David Culley was a one-and-done shadow coach, the way Romeo Cornell was a shadow coach when Bill O'Brien got fired. The Houston Texans are essentially saying, hire a black guy to clean it up. And the reason they're saying this is because Houston, like whenever there are jobs that are so terrible that no one wants it, you usually go and hire a black guy. It's why that when this is what we were talking about in the Brian Flores lawsuit, which is when NFL teams do hire black head coaches, they are usually for the worst of the worst jobs that have come available over the last 10 years. Byron Leftwich in Tampa Bay, one of the, or, uh, sorry, uh, Raheem, Mo- Raheem Morris, not Byron Leftwich, Raheem Morris in Tampa Bay was one of the worst head coaching jobs available in the NFL when he took it. Steve Wilkes with the Cardinals. Hugh Jackson with the Cleveland Browns. These are jobs. Uh, Brian Flores with the Dolphins. And of course, David Culley plus now Lovey Smith with the Houston Texans. Now, is Lovey Smith slightly more qualified than David Culley to be a head coach? Yes, but that's because the Houston Texans job is only slightly worse or slightly better than it was a year ago. And the slightly better reason is because they have the number three pick in the draft. But the Houston Texans find themselves at the crossroads of that as, you know, poster children for the racial scandal, or or, I'm sorry, the racial, the, the, 
structurally racist hiring practices of the NFL. That's what I meant to say. The poster child for structurally racist hiring practices in the NFL with, again, an owner that is good friends with Mitch McConnell. You have the Houston Texans and you have the the Houston Texans basically saying, we are doing terribly. Let's go hire a black guy as a head coach. Not explicitly saying it, but implicitly when no one else will take your job, you hire the ex-wide receivers coach of the Baltimore Ravens, who is 65 years old. Or you hire Lovey Smith, fired coach at the University of Illinois, and defensive coordinator on the staff of the 65-year-old wide receivers coach from the Houston Texans, who we said when he got hired he was going to be a one-and-done coach. He was a one-and-done coach, but if the Texans had to do it all over again, they wouldn't have made him a one-and-done coach. Now, Lovey Smith will probably also be a one-and-done coach because rare is the circumstance where a team is in such a bad position as a franchise that they have to do multiple one-and-done coaches. And technically speaking, this is the third for the Texans because Bill O'Brien got fired in like week four of 2019. So this is technically the third one-and-done coach for the Houston Texans in three seasons. The Houston Texans are at the crossroads of all of this stuff. And by the way, the Houston Astros did the same thing after their scandal when they went and hired Dusty Baker, when Dusty Baker wasn't really getting called. Dusty Baker will attest, he has said in quotes before, wasn't really getting calls for jobs. And the the Houston Rockets did the same thing with Steven Silas. When everything went to shit and all of the the bills came due for the James Harden era and Daryl Morey left and James Harden left and Mike D'Antoni left, Steven Silas, first-time head coach, was there to clean it up. And for two years, the Houston Rockets have been a really bad basketball team. And so as the bills come due, the Houston Texans went out and hired uh, you know, hired David Culley and then now hire Lovey Smith. They're at the crossroads of all of this. But the reason that the Houston Texans are now beginning a rebuild when the last two years they spent fumigating the organization is because of that number three pick in the NFL draft. They got all their draft picks back. They And this is, by the way, this is the exact reason why the NFL only lets you trade draft picks every uh, two years. You can't trade draft picks beyond two years because... The NFL doesn't want teams like the Texans being stuck in purgatory for years upon years upon years. So let's talk about the number three pick in the NFL draft. And some of it will be about who specifically the Houston Texans will take. But it's more so about the concept of the number three pick in the draft in the first place. The Houston Texans ideally plan for this draft pick to be the highest draft pick they possess during their rebuild. This is the beginning of the Houston Texans rebuild, uh, or you could call it year three of a five-year rebuild. You know, rare is there a situation in the NFL where you have to undergo a five-year rebuild, but let's call the last two years for the Houston Texans fumigation of the organization, and this year, year one of a three-year rebuild because a three-year rebuild model is the most accurate form of model we can use for NFL teams. Usually NFL teams, if they spend three years near the top of the draft, will accumulate enough talent in a sport where, you know, every single year, six or seven teams are actively tanking and six or seven teams are really good. Eight or nine are above average 
and eight or nine are what we classify as mediocre or average. You know, the, there, there have been data sets run on this that say across 45 years of NFL football, they're essentially every year five or six really good teams, eight to 10 really, you know, above average teams, eight to 10 teams who are kind of, uh, you know, below average, average, mediocre, and six teams that are tanking. Just that that tends to be the trend in the NFL. It's not a given every year. This is just running data across 45 years. And I forget the smart football person who ran this. I want to credit football outsiders, but I don't remember exactly who ran this data set. But it's a very good idea of the NFL. If we operate under that assumption, the Houston Texans were one of the teams that were just not good enough to win. And a big part of it was their own doing. They gave away DeAndre Hopkins for nothing. J.J. Watt left for nothing. Uh, Deshaun Watson was put in purgatory. All of their stars disappeared. They traded all of their draft picks for Laramie Tunsil, which would become the equivalent of five first-round picks. You know, the number three pick, uh, the the first-round pick in 2020, uh, three first-rounders, out of that number three pick and the third pick in the second round of the draft, which is first round talent at second round prices for the Miami Dolphins. I forgot who they took with that pick, but still, they they gave away the equivalent of five first round picks for Laramie Tunsil, one of the worst trades in the NFL uh, the last 25 years. <laughs> last 25 years, one of the worst trades in the NFL was giving up all of their draft picks for Laramie Tunsil and being terrible in a year that that pick became the number three pick in the NFL draft. So the Houston Texans made that move. They lost their star players all at once and had no available cap space. And by the way, players that wanted to come just sign for like minimum contracts like Mark Ingram and Rex Burkhead and Tyrod Taylor. By the way, some of those actually worked out. Like Mark Ingram was flipped for a fifth round pick and Rex Burkhead signed a contract extension. Like some of those worked out pretty well. I will give Casario credit there. Like used the little bit of cap space he had available to turn it into draft picks that could then be used later down the road. Or in the case of Rex Burkhead, you know, a player who actually wants to stay there as a foundational piece through all of the losing. And so the Texans rebuild starts right now. I mean, it technically started when they fired David Culley and hired Lovey Smith, but let's say it technically starts right now. The Houston Texans have one big piece that they can use to get pieces for the rebuild, like the Jacksonville Jaguars did with uh, trading Jalen Ramsey. They only got two first-round picks for Jalen Ramsey. And by the way, those two first-round picks turned into Clavon Chason and... I believe Travis Etienne. So didn't really work out that well. But what the Jaguars were getting was building a team so bad that they could get the number one pick to draft Trevor Lawrence. The Jaguars traded Jalen Ramsey to put themselves in a position to acquire Trevor Lawrence. The Jets traded Zach Wilson. I'm sorry, traded Jamal Adams to put themselves in a position to draft Zach Wilson. And they thought they were going to get to draft Trevor Lawrence. But they traded their franchise stars... And then actively lost to get, I mean, organizationally actively lost. The players didn't try to lose, but got the number one and two picks in the draft. The Texans lost Deshaun Watson. And Deshaun Watson will never play another game for the Houston Texans. The Texans lose Deshaun Watson, and they end up getting the number three pick in the draft. Now, they haven't gotten the draft picks for Deshaun Watson yet. 
But that's because Deshaun Watson is in legal jail right now. And we'll talk about that more later on. The Deshaun Watson stuff requires a full-scale podcast that we've done on Take It Easy, actually. We did it two weeks ago if you want to go check out that podcast on the Deshaun Watson lawsuit. Uh, We might just use that audio again at some point here. But let's take all of that and put it to the side. Just operate under the assumption the Texans have those draft picks waiting in the wing eventually. Ideally for the Houston Texans, they will not be this bad again. You couldn't have said the same thing last year. Coming out of 2020, we knew the Texans were tanking. They were actively trying to get the number one pick. This year, the Texans will probably also be actively tanking for the number one pick, but the Texans might have just enough talent to where they're actually trying to organizationally win football games. So by using their available draft picks this year, of which they had none last year, and using some of their available cap space, of which they had very little last year, the Houston Texans will add talent to their team. And by adding talent to their team, they ideally want to be better than the teams who are actively getting worse. I'm not sure who those teams are going into next year. It seems like the New York Giants will be one of those teams actively getting worse. Um, It seems like the Jets will try to get better. The Jaguars are going to kind of be in purgatory, but the point still stands. There are teams who are actively trying to get better and teams that are actively getting worse. And that's all based on where you stand in the middle of your rebuild. And so the Houston Texans find themselves in an interesting place because they will probably not be good enough to win next season. But ideally, this will be, with whoever they pick with the number three pick in the draft, the foundational building block for their rebuild. Their rebuild could succeed or fail based on how they hit this draft pick. Because ultimately, the thing that gets you into the top 16 teams in the NFL is having one generational game-changing talent. Most of them happen at the quarterback position. There are about four or five game-changing talents in the NFL that don't come from the quarterback position. That's the thing that separates you from, say, being the Dallas Cowboys, who have Dak Prescott, and the Carolina Panthers, who I ask you, who is the generational talent on the Carolina Panthers? Is there a top 15 player in the NFL on the Carolina Panthers? Top 20? 25? 30? How far do I have to go before you'll stop me? The Carolina Panthers, the last three seasons, with, as we acknowledge, no generational talent, 5-11, and 5-11, and 5-12. The Denver Broncos, similar situation. 5 and 11, 7 and 9, 7 and 10, or I think maybe 8 and 9 last year. Is that 7 and 10 or 8 and 9? Denver Broncos, name me a generational star on the Denver Broncos. Name me a top 15 player in the NFL on the Denver Broncos. You have to have at least one of those guys to make it to the top of the NFL because otherwise you swirl around in purgatory the way the Arizona Cardinals have swirled around in purgatory until acquiring Kyler Murray, the way the Jets have for the last 10 years, the way that the Giants have for the last 10 years, the way that Buffalo did for 20 years before they acquired Josh Allen, and now all of a sudden they're one of the elite teams in the NFL. You have to have some level of a generational talent. It's the reason why, while the Cleveland Browns aren't great, 
It's the reason why the Cleveland Browns are out of purgatory and out of the hell of being perpetually mediocre. Because there are about eight or nine perpetually mediocre teams. Sometimes I like to call them minor league football. But there are about eight to nine perpetually mediocre teams in the NFL where rebuild after rebuild, they fire a coach, fire a coach, fire a GM, fire a coach, fire a coach. You look up 15 years, you haven't made it to the playoffs more than once. The Raiders, perpetually mediocre. The Dolphins, perpetually mediocre. The Jaguars, perpetually mediocre for many, many years. Detroit Lions, Washington football team. You can go down the line to uh, Jets, Giants. <laughs> Sorry, Jets, Giants, Broncos. Carolina Panthers are inching towards that territory ever so slightly. They're not quite there yet, but they're inching towards that territory. And the Houston Texans. And that's about like a third of the NFL. Like right off the bat, those are teams that are just always terrible because they never get generational stars. And you know who was in that mix for the longest time? Cleveland. And you know what Cleveland did in their rebuild? They went through unprecedented levels of losing. Unprecedented levels of losing by the Cleveland Browns. And what did they get to show for it at the end? A player, I, I, I will say right now with no pushback, the best player in the history of their franchise. Because remember, Cleveland restarted in 1999. Best player in the history of their franchise in Miles Garrett. I know Joe Thomas is a Hall of Fame left tackle. Left tackles don't impact winning the same way that Miles Garrett, as a generational edge rusher, impacts winning. Because every single team in the NFL needs to have at least one of those game-changing generational stars. In the 2000s and early 2010s, there just weren't as many of those players. You know, there were four great quarterbacks. It was Tom Brady, it was Peyton Manning, it was Ben Roethlisberger, it was Drew Brees, and it was maybe Phillip Rivers. But then you also had LaDainian Tomlinson playing running back, or you had, you know, Champ Bailey as a first ballot Hall of Famer. You had Charles Woodson for a time. But you didn't have that many game-changing generational players. The Baltimore Ravens built a multi-time Super Bowl champion off of Ed Reed and Ray Lewis and interchangeable parts on offense. The Los Angeles Rams just won a championship with Aaron Donald as the integral piece and Jalen Ramsey, who again, the, the cornerback position doesn't necessarily change the game in the same way, but Jalen Ramsey, best cornerback to enter the NFL in the last 10 to 15 years. Like this generation's greatest cornerback and the best defensive lineman in the NFL. And we talk about how we're living in a golden age of quarterbacks also. Like, there are about eight to nine really, really game-changing quarterbacks in the NFL when before, say, there used to be four. And now it's Patrick Mahomes, it's Josh Allen, it's Lamar Jackson, it's Aaron Rodgers, it's Kyler Murray, it's Dak Prescott, it's Justin Herbert, it's Joe Burrow, it's Russell Wilson, and it's Deshaun Watson. And because there are so many more talented quarterbacks in the NFL than there used to be before, like game-changing great quarterbacks, they're blossoming in places that they've never had before because ultimately all of this is a drafting crapshoot. Andy Reid spent 25 years, and with all credit to Donovan McNabb, 25 years as a coach and never had the generationally great quarterback until Patrick Mahomes. The Houston, uh, the, sorry, the, the Buffalo Bills 
they had no quarterback for 30 years, and then they get Josh Allen, and they go from missing the playoffs for 17 straight years to back-to-back AFC East titles and deep playoff runs. The Arizona Cardinals went 40 years where their best quarterback was Carson Palmer. And that's just not good. By the way, the Bengals and the Cardinals went 40 years with Carson Palmer being their best quarterback. And great As great as Carson Palmer is, Carson Palmer is one of the, not, not exactly a game-changing quarterback by any stretch of the imagination. A very good quarterback, 15-year starter, not a game-changing quarterback by any stretch of the imagination. And Carson Palmer... With the with the Bengals and the Cardinals, the Bengals and Cardinals both have possibly those generational quarterbacks now. There's now more than there used to be because the talent pool has expanded. And by the way, you know where else it landed? Houston. Houston went from not having any good quarterback play to getting lucky enough that the Browns were willing to trade the pick that would ultimately become Deshaun Watson. And the Houston Texans almost won a Super Bowl with that and a generational defensive talent in J.J. Watt. They were good enough multiple times to win a Super Bowl with just those two players and shit built around them. And also DeAndre Hopkins, who was amazingly good at wide receiver. DeAndre Hopkins was balling out even when Brian Hoyer was his quarterback. Those three guys were good enough to make the Texans hugely relevant and in fact almost make a Super Bowl when they were up 24-0 on the Kansas City Chiefs about to play the Titans in the AFC Championship game. So generational talents are hugely important. It's also scientifically pretty much a crapshoot to try and find generational quarterbacks. But you know what the Cleveland Browns figured out? The best chance to turn around your franchise is to acquire a generational quarterback or a generational talent in a year that there is one of those painstakingly clearly available at the top of the NFL draft because the best the the most likely place you are to find a generational talent is at the top of the draft it's not a guarantee sometimes TJ Watt falls to pick 30 sometimes Lamar Jackson falls to pick 32 sometimes Russell Wilson slides to the second or third round but more often than not there are more people doing prospect scouting in the NFL then there is a need for scouting in the NFL. There is an over-existence of draft analysts and scouts in the NFL media landscape and in the NFL teams as a whole. There's just more scouting and more people on television and on media doing scouting than there is a need for actual scouting. So more often than not, People find the generational talents at the top of the draft. We knew Chase Young was a bit of a generational talent at the top of his draft. We knew Miles Garrett was going to be the number one pick from when he was a freshman at Texas A&M. Some of these things are painstakingly obvious. And the best place to get those generational guys is at the top of the draft. Now, did the Houston Texans miss out on their chance last season to get one? Entirely possible. The Houston Texans had the number three pick in the draft, if they'd kept the number three pick in the draft, it's entirely possible that they draft Trey Lance with the number three pick in the draft last year. Is Trey Lance a generational talent? No idea. We'll all find out together, won't we? But this year's class is some this year's draft class is someone is one that people have said and smart draft people like my friend Blake Jude or, you know, Bucky Brooks or whoever else you want to point to as NFL draft scout, Mel Kuyper or Daniel Jeremiah, or Connor Rogers, or whoever else you want to point to 
of doing the draft scouting says that the top pick in this year's draft class would have probably been the fourth or fifth pick in last year's class which in fairness was Jamar Chase last year. It was just an incredibly stacked draft class. But this year's regarded as an incredibly weak draft class. There's no way to guarantee that great players will be at the top of every draft class. It's just random chance when the generationally great ones happen to enter the draft. But there are three players that everyone says are consensus really good this year. It's Evan Neal, the 6'9", 300-pound offensive lineman from Alabama. Aiden Hutchinson from Michigan and Kevon Thibodeau from Oregon, the last two being edge rushers. And if those are the three consensus top players, which is not a guarantee, I've heard Kyle Hamilton, the safety from Notre Dame, might be the best safety prospect of the last five years, even though safeties don't necessarily have the same impact on on the game in the rule-changed NFL. But if those are the three people who are going to be the top three picks in the draft, it means Houston is going to be guaranteed one of them. And if all of them are viewed as equally probably good, either A, all of them are going to be generational talents, B, none of them are going to be generational talents, or C, one of them becomes a generational talent with a a good environment to grow and flourish into the best version of yourself. Maybe they'll just be very, very good players. Which, by the way... The Houston Texans don't have those either. Part of what helped the Cleveland Browns win a playoff game in 2020 was that not only they got Miles Garrett, they also had a base level of talent around him. They had good enough around Miles Garrett. They had Nick Chubb, who was a pro bowler. Denzel Ward is an all-pro corner. He's not a generational talent at the cornerback position, but he's one of the five best corners in the NFL. They had stability and Jarvis Landry also made a Pro Bowl, by the way. So they had, st- uh, and also the offensive line is very good. They had stability also around there. And the Texans do need that. Like, if any of those players become very, very good players, they will make the Houston Texans respectable. And respectable means going eight and nine every year. They need one of those generational guys. And by the way, the Texans maybe had three, at least two. They had J.J. Watt and Deshaun Watson. DeAndre Hopkins probably falls in the very, very good camp. But they had those guys before. And just two of those game-changing players, one helped the L.A. Rams win the Super Bowl, and two almost helped the Houston Texans make the Super Bowl less than two years ago. So the Houston Texans don't have to get a generational talent with this pick this year. But if they ideally want to get a generational talent through the draft, and they ideally hope that this year is going to be the earliest, or I'm sorry, this year is going to be the worst year of the rebuild, that the number three pick in the draft will be the highest draft pick that they hold over the next three years as they rebuild the team essentially from scratch, or the same place that the Lions were in a year ago. If that's where they're rebuilding from, then this is their best shot at getting a generational talent through the draft. All of it is probabilities. So maybe, say they get Aiden Hutchinson with the third pick in the draft. Say Aiden Hutchinson becomes a Pro Bowl player, second team All-Pro. That's very, very good. It's going to create a measure of stability for the Houston Texans. But if the Houston Texans want to go from being piss-poor terrible to relevant again in the NFL... They're going to have to get one of the top 15 or 16 players in the NFL, 
on their team. And ideally, it would come at the quarterback position, but it doesn't have to come at the quarterback position. The Rams won the Super Bowl with two generationally great players in Aaron Donald and Jalen Ramsey. You know, again, Jalen Ramsey's kind of on the precipice, but still, Aaron Donald, Jalen Ramsey, cornerstones of their team, and Cooper Cup. Let's not let's not shade Cooper Cup here. Best wide receiver in the NFL. Aaron Donald, Jalen Ramsey, Cooper Cup, and stability around that. You put stability around that, it's good enough to win. The Texans didn't put stability around Deshaun Watson or J.J. Watt or DeAndre Hopkins, it was still good enough to win four AFC South titles in six years. Not all of them with Deshaun Watson, but with J.J. Watt, it was good enough to win four division titles in six years. Even if they didn't put a stable base around them, if they had been more stable, if they had gotten more Pro Bowl players, if they made good trades instead of giving up every single draft pick they had for Laramie Tunsil, they probably could have gotten to the end because they were so close to getting to the championship anyways. So this is Houston's ideally best chance. Maybe next year is a punt season again for Houston and they get the number one pick in the draft. Not ideal, but it gives them a better chance to get the generational talent, especially if there is a generational quarterback in next year's draft. Whether that be Bryce Young or CJ Stroud, I don't know yet. But maybe that's the game plan for Houston is we're just going to suck again. And this year is a step forward. We're going to be like the Cleveland team that had the number one pick back-to-back seasons. Maybe that's the rebuilding strategy for the Texans. It would probably be the best strategy long-term for the Houston Texans. Maybe not for the development of whoever the number three pick in the draft is this year, but maybe that's an excuse to trade down in the draft and take more shots at the board to find supplemental talent for whoever that generational star is going to be. The Texans need to find a generational talent somewhere, and the best place to do it is the draft. That's how the Texans are going to jump out of purgatory. And if they don't get a generational talent, well, they'll be okay. They'll get enough talent in the draft that they'll be able to be okay. They'll be better than the teams that are actively tanking, which again, there's usually about six every year. They'll be better than those teams with available cap space and draft picks like Aiden Hutchinson or, you know, pro bowlers getting drafted in the second round or late first round. With with two or three pro bowlers, you too can go 7-10 and 10 in the NFL. Even the Atlanta Falcons did that last year. With even just two pro bowl caliber players, you too can go 7-10 and because the bar is so incredibly low in the NFL. In a game that's so random, you just got to have a base level of talent to be able to compete. And the teams that are rebuilding, they're the teams that are trying to find a base level of talent. It'll take some time, and the Houston Texans ideally want to speed up that timeline by hitting on this pick this year. Maybe it'll take two years. But if you subscribe to the idea that this will be the worst of the years, that the worst of the losing is behind us, and this number three pick is going to be our generational guy, then you need to hit on that pick this year. And you don't have the number one pick, so the decision is out of your hands. You technically have to trust that the Jaguars and the Lions are going to mess it up above you. Or that you're stable enough that if you get any of the, the you know, presumably the edge rushers, because I can't think of any left tackles other than maybe Trent Williams that are, you know, game-altering generational stars... Maybe it it has to be Thibodeau or Hutchinson, but if Thibodeau or Hutchinson or maybe Kyle Hamilton 
falls to you at number three, and you get to pick that guy, and they become generationally great, then you too can turn that franchise around and maybe get back to the place you were at before. If he becomes a very, very good player, that's a victory as well. But this is your best probability of getting one of those guys. I'm not guaranteeing that you're going to get one of those guys. This year's just your best probability of netting one of those players. So with that being said... Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night. However and whenever it is, you may be listening. Thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the Believe in Houston Texans podcast live on the Believe Podcast Network. Except it isn't live because, as always, it is a podcast. Except this time it is live because we are also here on YouTube. So welcome in YouTube world. This is a bonus episode of the Believe in Houston Texans podcast here on a Friday afternoon Uh, We have news coming in just now that the Harris County prosecutors and grand jury have decided that Deshaun Watson is not going to be charged criminally for the two cases of criminal criminal sexual assault that had been brought against him back in March of 2021. So I want to break this down now because for the first time in two years, or really the first time in a year, and call it 12 months or really two football seasons, whatever you want to call it, the first time we have to start talking about the football side of the Deshaun Watson case. And if you've listened to me talk about this on Take It Easy or here on YouTube, uh, we haven't talked about it here yet on Believe on Texans. But what I wanted to talk about is Whenever we talk about the Deshaun Watson situation, have a long-form conversation about it, because I think that the Deshaun Watson legal matter is one of the most fascinating stories we're going to see in this generation in terms of someone of fame and power and stature being faced with this unprecedented level of charges against him for essentially using massage therapists as Uber for sex. And you're seeing real victims coming forward. And by the way, more also in reporting done by Jenny Vrentas of Sports Illustrated beyond the 22 who are bringing charges against Deshaun Watson. There are more women who Deshaun Watson was also engaging in sexual harassment of who didn't bring those charges forward. We only know what we know in this situation. Having one of the five faces of the NFL and a person that every team values For the next 15 years, a player as good as Deshaun Watson was already going to leave the Houston Texans with the fallout with that organization. And then he has an unprecedented level of sexual harassment charges brought against him all while he's 26 years old and all while he holds extreme value. It's one of the most fascinating stories of this generation, this weird cross section of sports and society. And so every time we talk about this situation, it's important to divide into three groups. So we talk about the moral and ethical side of this issue, the legal side, 
and the football side. And every time we've had this conversation, we've put the football part off to the side because the football part is not important, relevant to the legal and the moral and ethical side. And so now the moral and ethical bridges are being crossed and a measure of accountability that we've been talking about for Deshaun Watson is also going to be called into question here. But today we're going to put all three of these together and the football side of it is also a moral and ethical side and the football side and morals and ethics tie into the legal situation for Deshaun Watson. So we talked about last month on Take It Easy that this was the most likely outcome according to legal experts, people who had background information on the case and had been following it for the past 12 months suggested that Deshaun Watson was not going to be charged with criminal sexual assault. And the reason for that is that the bar for criminal sexual assault is incredibly high in the state of Texas relative to the rest of the country. It's a high bar in the first place, but it seemed from the cases that were being brought about that Deshaun Watson committed lewd acts or sexually harassed women at, in a professional setting, but the high bar for crossing into sexual assault seemed to have not occurred, or at least it was more likely than not that this was going to be the outcome. And so while he is uh, being uh, examined and taking his deposition for uh, nine of the criminal, or sorry, nine of the civil suits, which again, for just quick legal background, a civil suit, which is the 22 that are bringing, that are being brought on Deshaun Watson, the 22 uh, civil suits are only needing to be proven more likely than not that Deshaun Watson has probable cause. If criminal sexual assault charges had been brought on Deshaun Watson, it would have gone to trial, you know, trial of your peers have to be proven innocent or proven guilty or innocent until proven guilty, 100% certainty that the person is guilty. The, the standard thing we think of in court. Civil is you're, you need to be proven culpable or responsible and you get financial damages when you go to civil court. And so Deshaun Watson was never going to have his freedoms taken away from a civil court case. He was going to end up paying out uh, a settlement ultimately, or it would go through depositions and people would get to give their testimony in the case. So today, Deshaun Watson went through nine dep or depositions in nine of his cases. And for about three plus hours, Deshaun Watson pled the fifth every single time that he was asked a question. He was not going to incriminate himself in this situation. This was obviously the result of his, le his legal advice, hence why Deshaun Watson has only posted one thing on his Twitter in the last year, is that Deshaun Watson is not going to incriminate himself in this situation by speaking on the matters the way that it seemed like Trevor Bauer was a little more loose about when he was talking about his legal situation. Now, he was more quiet than he would normally be, but Trevor Bauer was going on Twitter and his YouTube and talking about the case a little bit more aggressively than we've seen from Deshaun Watson. It's just a matter of getting different legal advice. So unrelated to the criminal case today, Deshaun Watson ends up going through about three hours of deposition, and he ends up uh, not really saying anything for each of these cases. And so Deshaun Watson ultimately had in the separate from this was the criminal cases that went through a grand jury and we knew the verdict was coming today we'd known back months ago that the verdict was coming today 
And so now you get on March 11th, the decision that charges are not going to be filed against Deshaun Watson. So now Deshaun Watson can settle his case in the civil suits out of court and pay whatever dollar amount is worthy of Deshaun Watson to make it go away. Um, According to Mike Florio of Pro Football Talk back in December, when the trade deadline was approaching and the Miami Dolphins were trying to acquire Deshaun Watson, the Miami Dolphins requested that all 22 women settle with Deshaun Watson before they made a trade. And Deshaun Watson could, or I'm sorry, um, Rusty Harden and Tony Busby, Rusty Harden representing Deshaun Watson, Tony Busby, the lawyer representing the women, they could only get a settlement in 18 of the cases. And that wasn't enough to make the case go away. So they abandoned the settlement and passed the trade deadline and nothing happened. The Carolina Panthers, by the way, in the same Florio article, were willing to trade for Deshaun Watson, even with the criminal cases still being open against him. Deshaun Watson wouldn't waive his no trade clause to go to the Carolina Panthers. And so Deshaun Watson is still going through the civil court process now with 22 women having charges brought against him. He will ultimately settle once he can get a settlement deal with all 22. They probably won't reach a decision where a a judge has to make a ruling because they'll ultimately compromise at some amount. Usually this is the case with powerful people. When you have the resources to make something go away, you usually use those resources to go away. On a greater level of power, we've seen what Jerry Jones has had pop up over the past few weeks with uh, Rich Darumple, his fix-it guy who they paid $2.5 million to make um, harassment charges against the female cheerleaders go away. Uh, He paid $400,000 in the 90s for silence of the mother of his secret child. And when you have money and power, you can make things go away. Deshaun Watson, to a lesser extent, has near infinite resources to make this go away. By the way, Deshaun Watson made another $40 million last year while he was on essentially administrative leave from the Houston Texans. So he has infinite resources to make this go away. If the women settle, then this is the really complicated part of how justice gets served in this case, because ultimately Deshaun Watson is willing to come to a compromise and both sides seem willing to come to a compromise. And this isn't a bad thing. It's just difficult to quantify this because this is a really weird moral and ethical situation. And we've talked before about there are real victims in this situation. And so it's it's why it's been really important to put that football part to the side is that there are real victims here who are suing for damages and it's more about what those damages represent more than it is the money itself and so this is an interesting place where deshaun and again this is a really deep moral and ethical situation where everyone is evaluating their own moral and ethical standings while also understanding the situation a little better or maybe not understanding the situation a little better i've done my best to try and figure out as much information and process my morals and ethics around this situation. Cause I thought Deshaun Watson was one of my favorite players many, many years ago. I thought his book was quite inspirational and a great story on leadership. And also it's important to not elevate football stars or athletes to a plateau that they don't deserve because ultimately they are people just like us. And in the case of Deshaun Watson, they're also using massage therapists for Uber sex while they're also 
throwing for 5,000 yards in the NFL. These are all things that exist, and we only know what we know in these situations. And so now that the legal, uh, the criminal case has been dropped, there's no charges being brought against Deshaun Watson, which, by the way, was something that we expected to happen. NFL teams are doing the calculation of what can we get away with because the NFL is a corporation. The bottom line for the NFL is not what is morally and ethically right. It is what is perceived to be morally and ethically right. They will tread the line of what they can get away with to maximize profits to the bare minimum of public shame. Like If it starts to affect the bottom line, the NFL will start to adjust. It's why the NFL wants you to think that the NFL cares about moral and ethical standings when it comes to, say, for example, putting end racism in the end zone, or it takes all of us, but also being the, the league that has a military appreciation month and a fighting cancer awareness month and has a Walter Payton man of the year to show how great of community service leaders the league is. There wants to be a perception that the NFL has a moral and ethical standard more than it is having an actual moral and ethical standard. And the 32 NFL teams are a byproduct of this. We talk about all the time is that if you like winning is the only thing that matters. If you aren't willing to make the move, you will lose to the person who does. And there, you know, you're hired to essentially put your morals and ethics aside to assemble the best possible football team, which proposes a whole slew of questions of whether or not we want morals and ethics in our corporations and whether we should be looking to corporations for moral and ethical standards, because ultimately you want some measure of accountability for Deshaun Watson. I think more than anything else, we want a measure of accountability for Deshaun Watson. And when the legal system decides that there isn't much of an accountability and he can pay a lot of money to make it go away, maybe the way to impinge upon, you know, some measure of accountability is you lose a chance to make money or you lose a chance to work at this profession that is, you know, most of us would argue is a profession of incredibly difficult stature to reach and is a privileged position to be in, in the world of just doing work. But that's a whole nother conversation about what measure of accountability for Deshaun Watson, as it relates to morals and ethics for football teams. It seemed that the criminal charges being brought against Deshaun Watson was a bar that few teams were willing to jump over. And according to Ian Rappaport in the aftermath of Deshaun Watson having criminal charges not filed against him, is that this process should speed up before the league new year on Tuesday which means that a Deshaun Watson trade could be eminent in the next five days, which suggests that the Houston Texans have had 12 months to gather trade offers from everyone and figure out who Deshaun Watson was willing to accept a trade to. Or maybe the Houston Texans, who, as I've said before, are the worst run organization in North American professional sports, maybe the Houston Texans are just going to go in in five days and say, we're just going to throw together a franchise altering trade package for a quarterback, for a player that we will never find as good of again. Like maybe that's the, the, the move that they make there, but more likely than not, they've been assembling different packages and taking offers on Deshaun Watson across the last 12 months or maybe even the last two months, because it really only takes about a week 
or in the case of the Matthew Stafford trade, about 12 hours to assemble a deal for a quarterback of the caliber of Deshaun Watson. It really takes about a week to put such a trade together. And the Texans know exactly what they want to get. They know what the market is for him because we know what the market is for him. We, as these dumb little people talking about sports, even we understand you should get three first round picks and more for Deshaun Watson. So Houston wants to speed this process up because now most NFL teams are drawing the moral and ethical line of saying, we can get away with trading this guy now that there aren't criminal charges being brought against him. It's still going to be a negative PR hit for teams as it should be. Whoever trades for Deshaun Watson is inviting this into their inner circle and they're going to write it off as he didn't have any criminal charges being filed against him. He still has an ongoing uh, civil suit, which we either he'll have resolved by the time he gets traded or we believe will get resolved. And the NFL has given us clarity about whether or not he's going to get suspended or not, which he should because there will be a moral outrage if Deshaun Watson gets one year of paid leave in exchange for 22 plus cases of sexual harassment of massage therapists. And so you're going to see that play out. But NFL teams are making the calculation that getting that quarterback changes our entire franchise so much that we're willing to absorb the negative PR hit. Because think of all the Deshaun Watson jerseys we can sell and how much money we're going to make when we go deep into the playoffs and have a successful football team because we have Deshaun Watson as our quarterback. And by the way, the other crazy part about all of this, Deshaun Watson can dictate wherever he wants to go. Carolina aggressively wants Deshaun Watson, which is a terrible look for Tepper, who we're learning is is a bit of an incompetent owner. Tepper wants him so bad and he's not going to get him. So he's only accepting the negative PR hits while not getting any of the benefits of actually having a better player. But I guess he's putting in the work now to hope that Watson will come there in the next, uh, Watson will play there, whoops, Watson will play there in the next year or so. And it's probably not going to work out well for the Carolina Panthers because Deshaun Watson has a full no trade clause. He dictates exactly where he's going to go. And so what's fascinating now is that when it's a civil court case and there's you know 100% reason to believe Deshaun Watson's going to settle this because I said back in March of last year, as someone who's not a huge legal expert in this case, I'm like, well, obviously he's going to settle. He has infinite resources and he can make the problem go away. But then we found out it was 22 cases, all were going to go through depositions and wanted the women to have an opportunity to voice their pain and voice their stories and just have a little bit of resolve on this issue. And, you know, one of the things that's interesting about sexual harassment and sexual assault cases is that sometimes that community of victims is something that can provide strength for people as they come to terms with the situation that happened is that it's not just you. And if you read the Jenny Vrentas story on Sports Illustrated, which if you check out her Twitter account, it's it's the first article that's still there. There's a really, really, you know, heartbreaking story about women talking about how they felt guilty in this situation, that it was somehow their fault that this famous person took advantage of them 
And it's a really, really heartbreaking story that, again, brings this moral and ethical side into it, which is someone should do something about this. And while getting paid to not play football for a year is a little bit of a heartache for Deshaun Watson that he didn't get to play last year in the middle of his prime, it's not enough. I don't know exactly where the moral and ethical bar should be hit because all of this is incredibly complex. And by the way, the NFL is going to give the punishment that they can get away with. I'm not sure what that punishment is, but whatever the punishment they can get away with while not having a public relations crisis, the NFL is going to make that move on Deshaun Watson. And this is the incredibly difficult part about that is we know that the teams and and the corporations, because each NFL team is a corporation, essentially, every NFL team is not under a moral and ethical code. Now, everyone has different morals and ethics around the situation, but if everyone is presented an opportunity to acquire Deshaun Watson, everyone is going to make such a move, whether it's the Carolina Panthers or the San Francisco 49ers. The only teams that can spin this as victories for themselves are teams that already have quarterbacks, and they can spin this as we don't want to acquire Deshaun Watson, therefore we are not going to trade for Deshaun Watson because he is a sexual abuser. And so Deshaun Watson, or sorry, sexual predator, not necessarily abuser, sexual predator in this case. We're not going to make that move. By the way, this was the same strategy that the Dolphins took last year behind the scenes, which was Brian Flores being out front and saying, we have no interest in acquiring Deshaun Watson, while behind the scenes, they were actively trying to trade for Deshaun Watson, and they would have gotten him if there had been a willingness to settle out of all, or if they had gotten a settlement for all 22 cases where Deshaun Watson was going to pay whatever number it is. I don't know exactly what is being asked in the, in the settlement, but if he pays whatever amount to make it go away, and then all of a sudden he's a Miami Dolphin with Brian Flores. And so one of the things that's interesting about this is if there is no moral and ethical standard for NFL teams to abide by, and they can get away with acquiring Deshaun Watson. Now, this process is going to go incredibly quickly because the Texans have been waiting an entire year to get out from under this situation. The Texans were going to make this move last year prior to the NFL draft. And the thing that I felt certain about back then was Deshaun Watson was never going to play another game for the Houston Texans. The Texans would like to be out of this situation. Cal McNair has taken all of the negative PR hits on this situation. And the reason they did that is because Deshaun Watson is so valuable. He's one of these 15 people in the NFL who holds franchise altering value. And those players never come available. Russell Wilson they were talking about on Tuesday whether Russell Wilson being traded to the Broncos was the biggest trade in the history of the NFL. Russell Wilson is in his mid-30s and has had two seasons of not playing top five quarterback football anymore. The last time we saw Deshaun Watson, Deshaun Watson was 25 years old and one of the four best quarterbacks in the NFL. And I've talked about many a times how the Houston Texans almost won a Super Bowl in 2020 because of Deshaun Watson and stability around that team, still with Bill O'Brien in charge and what was at the time Rick Smith, soon to be Jack Easterby, once Rick Smith ended up getting fired and Bill O'Brien took over in his first full offseason, Bill O'Brien traded DeAndre Hopkins for nothing and Jack Easterby 
took over the team and all of that stuff. Like, you know, acquired Laramie, traded all their picks for Laramie Tunsil, got rid of Deshaun of DeAndre Hopkins for nothing, all that stuff that tears down the Texans franchise after that. All the things that Deshaun Watson wanted to leave the franchise for before all of this happened. So now NFL teams are doing the calculation that we can absorb the hit of a civil suit because people are going to look at the not having criminal charges brought against him as a sign that Deshaun Watson is quote unquote innocent. And this is an interesting bar here because everyone has their own moral and ethical standards when it comes to this situation, especially men with a whole lot of male privilege in this situation, but everyone has their own bar here. But again, the bar for criminal sexual assault in the state of Texas is incredibly high. And the bar for criminal sexual assault across America is an incredibly high bar. And so just because Deshaun Watson crosses that threshold doesn't mean that there isn't also a lot of allegations against him that are founded that don't cross the bar of criminal. There should be some measure of accountability in this situation because there is a whole lot of nuance that needs to be applied from either criminal or not criminal. It would be easy if the world was that simple. But again, systems of always humans naturally just want systems of accountability to be taken out of their own hands. We don't want to be the accountability factor. We want to believe that there is some sort of accountability measure above all else. But laws are pretty imperfect. Morals and ethics are an incredibly imperfect standard because everyone has their own moral and ethical codes. And the same people with different moral and ethical codes are also the people who are building, uh, who are making the laws that ultimately dictate who's a criminal and who's not. But again, there's an incredibly nuanced bar in between or a nuanced spectrum of there are things that happen that don't cross the criminal threshold. And also there needs to be some measure of accountability for Deshaun Watson using massage therapists as Uber for sex in an incredibly sexually predatory way. And Deshaun Watson's not going to get a fair measure of accountability to some, and he's going to be overpunished for others. And that middle ground is unfortunately where we try to find some measure of accountability. Sometimes justice isn't delivered. I'm not sure what the bar is going to be in this Deshaun Watson situation. And by the way, he's going to go to exactly the team that he wants to go to and make an exorbitant amount of money to do it because Deshaun Watson has power over the NFL. He has power over billion dollar corporations and Deshaun Watson has infinite resources with that power. And so Deshaun Watson finds himself now in a position of power because now that the criminal charges are gone, he gets to be the first star quarterback in his prime that gets to pick the franchise that he plays for. This has never happened in the history of the NFL. A star quarterback in the middle of their prime, one of the five guys who everyone tries to get in the middle of his prime is going to get to pick the team that he wants to go to. And if you're the Houston Texans, this is the player who's going to jumpstart whatever rebuild they end up going through that we talked about on Tuesday on the Believe in Houston Texans podcast. Whatever they get in value here is going to jumpstart whatever rebuild they're now beginning. Because the last two years were, we, there's, you know, there's bad teams, there's mediocre teams, there's 50 feet of crap, 
And then there's the Houston Texans. They spent two years just getting back to a place of zero because now they at least have their draft picks for all of the shitty seasons. And the Houston Texans are going to get whatever they get from Deshaun Watson because he's a hugely valuable asset. It's not going to be equal value to what Deshaun Watson is worth, but they're going to get 70 cents on the dollar, 80 cents on the dollar, whatever teams are willing to pay in, in exchange for Deshaun Watson. And it has to be a team that Deshaun Watson wants to play for, which puts the leverage in Deshaun Watson's camp and not in the camp of the Houston Texans, other than telling him to pound sand and stay. But the Houston Texans are not going to invite that situation back into their lives. It's been two years of being in purgatory in a totally unprecedented situation. And now they get a chance to move on to whatever team is willing to pay up for Watson because Watson has tons of power, tons of resources, and the no trade clause gives him leverage. And now that his his one year pause, I mean, one year ago last week was when, or sorry, one year ago this week was when the charges were first brought against Deshaun Watson. After his one year pause to resolve his legal situation, Deshaun Watson is going to get traded as if it was March of 2021 all over again. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for stopping in here to the Believe in Houston Texans podcast bonus episode here on the Believe Podcast Network and live on YouTube. And uh, I assume at some point it'll also go up on the Believe Podcast Network. So with that being said, ladies and gentlemen, have a wonderful, wonderful weekend. And we will talk to you again on Tuesday for our weekly episode of the Believe in Houston Texans podcast, unless we have another breaking news story that we need to cut into because Deshaun Watson has been traded or something to that effect.